Lady Parts. We are a feminist genre podcast exploring representations of women in front of and behind the camera. We're your hosts. My name is Sophie. And I'm Amy. And this week, because the cinemas are all still closed or closed again, if you're in Melbourne like me, uh, (laughs) we focused this episode on two films that had worldwide distribution online, The Half of It and Seller and the Spades. Yes, we did. Um, but it has been a very while since uh, we last explored Lady Parts. Uh, we've had a health pandemic, global shutdown, and worldwide protest in response to systemic racism and the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. So it's been a, a really focused time to reflect, um, particularly on social change and social advocacy, um, particularly in the role of media in perpetuating the status quo and the power it has to support that change. Um, At Lady Parts, we've always celebrated diverse voices and stories, and we really want to acknowledge the role reviews play in advocating and platforming underrepresented voices. What critics and reviewers choose to review goes a really long way towards the visibility of films and TV, not specifically their commercial success, but certainly if and how consumers engage with content. With that in mind, we're committing ourselves to reviewing, talking about and spotlighting genre films made by more diverse storytellers. We've always tried to do this, but that effort alone is not enough. In respect of that, we're committing to you that over half the films we review from now on will be from voices that are not straight white dudes, and we will amplify voices that are decolonizing genre cinema. We encourage you to seek out new stories from new voices and to help connect with those stories, we're curating a list on our new letterboxed Lady Parts pod. Yes, so do uh, support underrepresented voices, particularly in film and television. And uh, yes, we will be sharing some of those stories throughout the year. We will, including today. (laughs) Starting now. The good thing about being different in a town like this is that no one expects you to be like them. I'm 17. I live in Squamish with my dad. I run a business, writing essays for people. I guess I just never thought I'd need anyone else. (laughs) Uh, So the first film we'll be reviewing today is The Half of It, which is about a shy, introverted student who helps the school jock woo a girl whom secretly they both want. Uh, The half of it is directed by Alice Wu. The film's cast includes Leah Lewis, Alexis Lemire, Daniel Daimier, and Colin Chu. And the film was scheduled to premiere at Tribeca in April this year. But thanks to the global shutdown, it was released. It had its worldwide premiere on Netflix in May. So, Sophie, the half of it. Thoughts? Comments? I was completely charmed by this film, Amy. There were tears. There was a lot of warm and fuzzy Aww. feelings. It was, I really, really liked it. And I think that they did a really, really good job of capturing that coming of age in a small rural town and the added difficulties of that when your um, sexuality is something that's perhaps not endorsed by the town overall, mm-hmm. particularly in a small um, religious community like this one was. I really loved the kind of tagline of it overall of being, you know, like not every love story is a romance. Yeah. Um, And how it kind of played with, um, I think, yearning for connection over romance. Um, Yes. But at the same time, pulling no punches about her sexuality as well. 
most definitely. It was actually kind of cool to see her have a really clear view of her own sexuality. Like it wasn't so much a question for her. She knew. She mm. knew. But it was her capacity to be able to explore that. That was um, that was a challenge particularly in her town. But beyond that, like you said, it wasn't about romantic love at all. It was actually about platonic love and the connections that we make outside of uh, sexual intimacy. Yeah. And it was also interesting to see the kind of the ways it really unpacked the baggage, I guess, that comes along with something like that. Because obviously the small town was a huge part of it. But also in terms of her relationship with her father, who'd been so desperate to give her a better life in America, but also wasn't had been kind of through his grief from being widowed, but also how he'd been set back in life as an immigrant and whose first language is in English and about how all of that sort of stuff compounds um, and places a lot of pressure on the shoulders of of young people like this. Mm. Um, I thought it was really beautifully explored. Um, And Leah Lewis, who plays Ellie Chiu, I thought was phenomenal. I thought she was really, really good. Such a good cast. It was such a strong Mm. cast, although I find it very hard to believe they're all in the same grade. Just yeah, they interact <laughs> with each other. I was like, oh, all right. But um, it's it's really interesting because this there's so many so many components as you said. Like there's the small town small town element. There's the um, questioning your sexuality element. But then there's also that um, immigration story. You know that um, she's the she's the child of an immigrant. She is an immigrant herself, and so trying to navigate that in such a small, insular little town. Um, I think that was the story that I enjoyed the most was that it wasn't one of those things. It was all of those things, um, and it was set in this middle town, <laughs> tiny little town in the middle of nothing and nowhere. Um, so there was such a it's such a sweet film. Um, and it's such an amazing cast and told really, really well. Like the direction's really, mm. really lovely and it's really well paced and really well articulated and yeah, top points. <laughs> yeah. And I liked the way that it explored different degrees of confinement as well with all three of the leads. So with Ellie, Paul and Asta, I mean, we've just kind of talked a bit about Ellie, but you know, Paul as well in the sense of feeling, um, like he would always be working at his parents butcher shop and that and sausage shop sorry and that he couldn't make his choices. own sausage <laughs> yeah he couldn't make his own choices to be different as the youngest of seven kids yeah and about especially the line that's about halfway through where he says that he can't change the recipe because it's his grandmother's recipe and that's a way that her mum feels close to her grandma still and like i just think there's a lot of really really nice beats like that that gave um that gave an authenticity to these characters and to these moments as well. And it was, I think it was one of those ones too that just believed in people, you mm, know, mm. and believed in people's capacity for kindness. Like even the awful kids who were awful were still kind of very much off to the sides and the peripheral of the story itself. Mm, mm. It's interesting that you say that about, um, you know, the, the pressures that each of them feel that gives them a level mm. of nuance and depth that you often lack in these kind of stories where Mm. they're very surface level. Like even Asta, who's supposed to be, you know, the quintessential popular girl and, you know, object of everyone's affection, she's not. She actually feels an immense amount of pressure being the daughter of a deacon and also not being the most popular girl. She's kind of oddball amongst the popular girls. So it's um, 
they've all got these very uh, specific and very unique um, layers to them that um, you often don't see in these kind of, particularly in a in a, in a YA love uh, story film, you don't often get that kind of depth. Yeah, and it was, and also even beyond just the, that kind of depth that we've spoken about now is the fact that realistically, like, you look at all three of these kids in particular and you're like, there's so much waiting for you out in the world, you know, and um, Ellie's the only one who gets out. Mm. Mm. And I think that that was really poignant, um, yep. especially towards the end where it's like, even though Paul's got his struggles with his family and that invisibility that he feels, as as well as Asta having that kind of similar experience of thinking that she's going to marry this boy because that's just what you do. Yeah. Um. And it's their journeys were kind of were left open ended enough, but with the, but they didn't actually get out. Yeah. You know. Well, that's so, where I think it was really interesting to contrast, say, Ellie, Paul, and Asta, who have very different priorities. For Paul, that was never his objective. It was never about no. getting out. He was happy to stay in that town for the rest of his life. He was happy to marry some girl he met in high school and and live his life in a small town as long as he could make his sausage. He was happy <laughs> as long as he could make his own sausage. And that is not a metaphor. It's not a euphemism. It's a literal sausage. Uh, whereas even Asta, she was kind of resigned to this idea that she wouldn't, she, she would get married. I, I think Asta was the least drawn out of the three of them. She was the least, mm. um, clear out of, in terms of her obje- objectives throughout, um, the film. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's an interesting point that Ellie was the only one that left when particularly Asta has such a, has a, such a potential outside that town that it was never mm. a consideration for her family to leave. It was always you're going to get married as soon as you finish high school and that's kind of your lot in life. You're going to marry someone like your father and that's it. Yeah. 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 It's I, I'm really intrigued by even Trigg, who's the, the boyfriend Asta's supposed to marry. I think he's such an inter- interesting character again because it, for him it wasn't about, you know, world domination. It was about him just inheriting the throne literally from his parents and being – you know, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Top dog, for want of a better phrase, yeah. within town. You know, that he was happy with that, you know. Or well, community think, leader, even. Community leader, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's probably the best way to frame it. And it's so telling, particularly of those small towns where they're, I think people assume that everybody wants to leave when you've grown up in those small towns. Mm. But so few do because it's a scary world out there. So they kind of... Yeah. I think they balance that really well, that, that, that challenge between leaving and, and feeling obligated or wanting to stay. I think it's really interesting dynamic mm. between the three leads. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And then yeah. you've got um, Mrs. What's, what, uh, the teacher who was like, get out, get out while you can. I know. She was great. <laughs> um. Yeah. I, I, it was such a sweet little movie. And the soundtrack, can I say, oh, ha, ha, swoonage so much yeah it was a lovely soundtrack it was just really nice overall like it was i understand i I do think it's probably a film that's not for everyone yes um it's it was very quiet um but i like a quiet film personally um and i think in terms of you know there's a great quote from the cohen brothers which said good direction is good tone management yeah and i think in that sense alice Wu exceeded tenfold i think there was such a specific tone to this film yeah. And there were some scenes that I think didn't entirely work. I don't actually think the scene at the um, 
where Ellie sang at the end, I don't think that really worked. Um, I think it was a bit hokey in a movie that wasn't hokey. Mm. Um, and it was a bit But she's on finding the nose, her voice, Sophie. Yes, and that was the voice. bit I found a bit... <laughs> I think it had been done so much more successfully in other parts of the film yeah. that it was kind of unnecessary, um, even if it did kind of form a nice little moment overall. Um, and I think one of the big issues that I had with it too is I had a real struggle um, with the geography of the town. Okay. Um it took me a while to establish, particularly because the railway station, which is such a huge part of the film, and then kind of thinking about the railway station was, in the end, you know, you, you knew that the railway station was in the middle, and then you had Ellie's house on one side, and then Paul's re- the Paul's family restaurant seemed to be on the other side of the train station. Yep. But that was not really established until like two-thirds of the way through the film. Yeah. And I'm, I'm finding now, as I get older, so I become old, Amy. <laughs> You're so old, Sophie. I just, it was, I was confused by the decision to not have an establishing shot earlier in the film. Of the that. town, yeah. Yeah, and particularly with how, so I think there were some orientation problems overall, Yeah, I'd say. Um, but again, all of that's kind of easily overlooked. Like I said, when the tyrant is so on point like this and the character arcs are so satisfying. Oh, for sure. Um... So, but yeah, but it is worth noting. And again, like it's stuff I think for me, um, you know, I always think of that kind of uh, the scene and screen, which we talked about a bit when we did our um, Gold Coast Film Festival event last year, um, about how well that orients you to the houses. Yeah. Um, and that's, I kind of think that that was really missing in this. Particularly, I think, if you're looking to um, articulate throughout the narrative the isolation and the closeness of those kind of small towns. Like, it's good having that big orientation shot, that drone shot over the top of the town, um, because Mm. it's hard to understand, particularly when you live in a city, the, the sparseness and... One of the keys, well, one of the repeating scenes is Ellie always bikes from school to her house, mm. and it seems like it's a really long way out of town, but it's not. It's like smack bang in the middle of it, but you don't get that, as you said, until quite some way into the film. Whereas an orientation yeah. shot's a bit clearer. Yeah, well, and it's not even necessarily the drone shot that was needed, but it's stuff like you know when he is following her around, trying to get her to write this letter for him at the start of the film. Um. Why don't we have that shot where they meet eyes across the railway station? They, they live across from each other. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't understand why that journey is not starting there and why it took so long for us to realise. Really, it was the scene where he's throwing out the trash and looks up to see her playing guitar in her room, which was when I realised they lived across from each other, or at least he worked across from where she lived. Mm. And like that shouldn't have taken that long for us to find out. Um in terms of the overall narrative structure and in terms of just the geography and orientation of the town. What that tells me is those two houses in reality are nowhere near each other. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yes. That is a trick of photography right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Like, that was, I think, probably the biggest issue that I had with it was around the kind of geography and orientation because it's something that's really important to me as a viewer. Yeah. But in terms <laughs> of think, how it's you engage with the story is that, you know, it's not a make or break issue for you. No. But I think as well, though, like I said, I think it represented missed opportunities for me. Because sure. I think that we should have seen more... Because I think as well there was a certain metaphor that they were going with by the end of it, about the half of it, 
them literally being on either side of the train track and being a half, you know, of a sort of hole. Yes. Was it that they were going for? And in which case we shouldn't have been finding that out two thirds of the way through it. That's you know? true. That's a fair point. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Like, I just thought that was a, a missed opportunity, I guess. That's fair. That's fair. Mm. Um, yeah. You did bring it up. You did touch on it. Um, the half of it metaphor yes. that continues throughout the film is based yes. on a quote from Plato about this concept of soulmates that originally when people were conceived or born into the universe, they were actually two heads, four arms, four legs that were cleaved in two because Zeus was so jealous of the whole situation uh, of people or the gods, not necessarily Zeus. Um, what did you think of that as a, a metaphor? I Look, I'm going to throw it out there. I hate that idea. I hate it. I hate, I hate it. <laughs> Because it operates under the assumption that there is one person that you ca- you have capacity to connect with. And I'm like, of the universe. Yeah. I've always kind of like lived by the co- code that you have soulmates for different points in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that you have an overarching one, no. But I did kind of like the idea of finding a connection in somebody. Mm-hmm. So I guess I enjoyed it as kind of a... As a symbolic image as opposed to a you know weighted metaphor if mm-hmm. that makes sense mm-hmm. well i think this film um, lends to that point is that particularly mm. paul is the other half of her friendship self and yes even Aster, i don't think is half of her romantic self but it's certainly in terms of where she is in that life she's identified the only other person who may be questioning in the same way that she is so um yeah they're kind of two of the one um symbolically uh, <laughs> at that point but yeah no i take your point yeah yeah and uh, what yeah what did you think of it oh look, you, just you hate the idea of it Science is stupid um no no i agree <laughs> with you i think people are um they're with you for a time like i went to 10 schools in eight years so this idea of soulmates for me is actually really look if I've met them well I'm sorry I've already left like that's (laughs) um and statistically like my analytical brain is like you know there's how many people on the planet so to meet one person out of that many people in your own country in your own language um in your own time is just statistically hard for me to grapple with so you know I'm a cynic (laughs) on that front but I really like the idea of the the philosophy behind it and the fact that that's kind of Ellie's that's her romantic side because she's quite analytical. She's very perfunctory. You know, she um, gets paid to write essays for other people, not because she particularly likes writing essays, but because she needs the money. Um, Mm. And that for her romanticism to be wrapped up in this idea of soulmates and in philosophy is actually kind of lovely. Yeah. Yeah. I like it as a character point. No, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It is a really nice character note for her. And I think as well it could be read, and how I prefer to read it in this context, is that her and Paul both filled a need for each other at a point which let them grow as people individually. Yeah. And I think in some ways, you know, become more rounded people themselves as opposed to just together necessarily. Um, Because it's certainly, you know, she wouldn't have left if Paul hadn't, if, if, if it wasn't for her friendship with Paul and the growing that she'd done with Paul. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, though. It's an interesting it's an interesting theme for a film like this because it's, it's, sim- it's simultaneously, like, quite a dumb trope 
but never quite done like this, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's interesting to see it in that context. Mm. It Well, interesting too, because it's so philosophy heavy as well. Like they mm. quote Plato, yeah. they quote Camus, they Satra, um, Sartre. I don't know how to so, so true. <laughs> um, and the five strokes theory, you know, uh, in terms of art, like there's so much philosophy in there mm. about this idea of desire and human behavior and love that it's, I think it's really interesting too, that in terms of the half of it idea that Ellie is really protecting her vulnerable half, you know, her, it's only her really rational, logical self that she presents to everybody, very cynical self that yeah. she presents to everybody. But she she believes all of this philosophy. She she's so um, aching for that connection, and I think um, it's there's there's multiple layers. There's so many layers, Sophie. There are so many layers. So many layers. That's <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, what else? I do want to make a special note of a lingering shot on a bassoon in this film that I was very <laughs> excited by. You and your bassoon made me so happy that everything was centered around the orchestra like it was so good yeah. oh divine <laughs> out of context there everyone amy plays bassoon shut up sophie <laughs> and i play it very well so you can all get stuffed um <laughs> also can i just make a special note and i'm just reading my notes here because literally all i've written is narrator voice heart symbol tone <laughs> so leah lewis's narration is just like she's great so good (laughs) she's so good i hope she has an amazing career after this definitely um yeah i think she was amazing very um on that note we should be talking about what we're here to talk about amy which is the lady part oh look sure yeah we should do that um ellie i feel like we've talked about ellie i feel like we've talked about ellie so maybe we should jump on to asta we've talked about a little bit already yeah asta i think is probably the weakest of the main three certainly in terms of her objectives but um, I think she's... She also looks a lot older than them. So much older than the other two. <laughs> I don't think she is. Like, I think she's she looked not. like the actress while I was watching it. But I was just like, right. she looks... She's got a very mature face. She does. Beautiful face, but mature But I think face. that also has to do with uh, her costuming and her styling. You know, um, mm. one of the things that Ellie, particularly that juxtaposition between Ellie, Paul, and Asta, is that... Ellie and Paul still dress like children, whereas Asta's kind of already making that movement of accepting her future. So she's, yeah, and she's almost married. Yeah, right. She's she's <laughs> symbolically married to Trig. Um, I think I think she's still a bit of an empty vessel, though, in terms of her objectives. But I think in saying that, for an empty vessel, she's pretty pretty nuanced, and she's like she's an in- still an interesting person. Yeah, I agree. I don't think. She didn't have a lot of agency, but I think that was the point. Yeah. Um, I don't think she was somebody who felt like she could exactly. have any agency. And that was something that was really well addressed, I think, during the film itself. And it's, her, you know, she had so many nice small moments, particularly with the painting and the art stuff, which was just really, um, I think, compelling and revealing of what a rich inner life she has. Yes. Um, but how much that's watered down by the life that she feels she has to have and lead and her circumstances yeah 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 um i thought that was really well drawn i thought um alexis lemire the actress did a really good job of conveying that too Mm. Um, because in some ways i think she had one of the harder roles um in the films film like because um 
Ellie and Paul were both just so organically charming in the way that they were written. <laughs> so uh, good. <laughs> they were so good. Like, I thought all the cast was really, really good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there were some really nice and poetic scenes. And it was especially, it was really nice to see the f- scenes where she was kind of confused, particularly her first date with Paul. Um where it was just about kind of you could really see her grappling with the person who she was texting not seeming to be in front of her of course which we know he wasn't Mm. but um but then also the scene later at the hot springs i thought was really really nice and nicely done i agree i think it's someone who's never been challenged in terms of what her future would be so she always assumed that this was her path and you see that a lot you know in these kind of small town narratives and this for the first time she's kind of had to navigate something that she hasn't been prepared for you know um Mm. paul suddenly texting her out of the blue and sending her a love note she's like well i've been dating trig since i was born so you know yeah whatever um she's had to navigate that and then she's navigating this new female relationship with someone outside of her friendship circle that um makes her question herself and her identity i think as you said, mm. you know, Alexis brings such a level of um, depth to that. What could be, it could be a really um, empty character, a really, you know, yeah. uh, vapid character on, on the page, but on screen she actually brings a lot of um, warmth to, to her as mm. a person. Yeah, mm. Which totally. Really, um, and questioning herself as well. Like she's never thought mm. to question her own sexuality. And so now suddenly she's challenged to, and she's like, well, and that's something mm. actually that I, I was really interested in the way that the half of it kind of grapples with is that idea that intimacy and vulnerability, um, isn't always about sex and sexual mm. attraction. And I think yeah. that's what I took the most out of the half of it is this was a story about people actually just learning how to be friends as adults. They yeah. didn't, they weren't friends that they'd had since they were born or anything like that. They were just trying to, to navigate the, the strong emotions that they feel towards each other. That is actually the intimacy of friendship rather than a sexual relationship. Yeah. And it was really totally agree. Um, and I think it was also did a very, very good job of exploring between the three of them. They all had very different reasons for having not formed emotional, emotionally intimate connections with people before. Mm. Um, you know, with Ellie in terms of her isolation within the small town generally, but as being an immigrant and also knowing her own sexuality, but also in terms of her mother's death. Mm-hmm. Um, with Paul being the youngest of seven kids. And I love, love, love that scene when they go to his house to have dinner and it's like, he could not get a word in edgewise. And like, you, and you, cause the whole film's in building up to the fact that he does not know how to have a conversation. Yeah. And then you're in that room and you're like, Oh, that's why I understand why. <laughs> and even at the church with Ellie's mm. confession and you see the family kind of respond to everything and you're like, Oh, I get it. Yeah. Okay. I see. Yeah, it. yeah. exactly. It's just so, um, you know, it's such a great way of, depicting you know how he's been I guess silenced emotionally for a big part of his life um even though he might probably not have realized that for most of most of his life probably before this um but then Astor as we've kind of just talked about in terms of being really pigeonholed into a role as the deacon's daughter Mm. and having this kind of life plan set out for her and being lumped in with women that she doesn't relate to yeah um and I kind of, I even liked that. I thought that, you know, 
we don't see much of those other girls, but they weren't really judged necessarily. It was just that she didn't fit in with them. Yep. You know? Um, well, there was and, there's, there's that unity and sameness. that Yes. And I think that was really um, telling with the scarf thing where they're like, here's a gift. Yes. You're going to wear it now because we're all wearing <laughs> it now. Um, and that's where she didn't feel that level of sameness all the time. And that's where she felt really mm. challenged in being in that space. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was really nice to have this kind of same theme explored in all three of them, but executed so differently. Yes, definitely. Um, and I thought that was like really a sign of Alice Wu's, the quality of her writing in this. Yeah. Um, and her direction of this in terms of being able to do that in a way that felt so seamless. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And in a way that's not um, performative either. Like it's yeah. very... Um, they still behaved like teenagers. They still spoke like teenagers. Um, mm. Their priorities were still in that space, which was really good. So it wasn't as the, even though Ellie is really ridiculously smart, she wasn't. Mm. You know, Ellie being the central character is that precocious teen, but she's not behaving like an adult. She's actually behaving like a child who's forced to to um, engage at an adult level. Like she's taking care of her father. She's filling in for mm. her father's job. Um, so they're still behaving like teenagers, which I quite loved. So, yeah, um, yeah I think that's a testament to Alice Wu's writing as she understood, you know, where they're kind of out of that level, particularly with that small town sensibility. And that was really, really well played out. So major props. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Rest of Lady Parts. I don't think there's that many more women in it. <laughs> there's really not. The teacher's kind of cool. She's a juxtaposition. I really yeah. love the, the play between her and – um, Ellie, where she's like, I left this town. And Ellie's like, how'd that work out for you? Because you're back. Yeah, that was very fun. <laughs> and she's and like, shut up, get out. <laughs> I've got to go on the record too and just say that I love Becky Ann Baker who plays her. <laughs> I've loved her since Freaks and Geeks. I just think she's so charming and delightful and just really um, commands the screen when she's on it. She does. She's such a great energy to her. She does. Yes, yeah, so I was deli- I didn't know she was in this at all, so I was very delighted to see her pop up. <laughs> it's a pretty minor role, but still, it's yeah. always nice to see her. She's always welcome on my screen. Definitely, definitely. Oh. Um, that's that's it for female roles. I mean, there's some passing female roles like Asta's mum and the popular girls and at Paul's school. Mom. And Paul's mum. And Paul's mum. Yeah, but there's not a lot of substance. But I think um, there's a big gaping wound where Ellie's mum was, and I think the absence of her and the way – um Ellie and her dad kind of react to her absence is actually really well done it's not um I don't think it was cliched actually I think it was actually quite nuanced and and really well handled Mm. yeah I agree I totally agree and I like as well that it was partially again it's a reflection on that kind of I guess the half of it metaphor but more about the two Paul and Ellie really learning how to build each other up Mm. Um, was Paul's confrontation with her dad, um, but also the sausage making scene. Sausage I thought was delightful. It was so sweet. It was so sweet, and it's like again, it becomes this really nice parallel when you look at kind of how not deliberately neglected, but how ultimately neglected Paul is in his own household because of the eight million children <laughs> that are in it, <laughs> um, and versus how Ellie. And her dad are more than a team, you know, like it's the amount of responsibility that's pushed onto Ellie um, because of her dad's... They're very insular, yeah. 
Very insular, yeah. So it just kind of became really, it was, it's very nice. It's very nice. Yeah. And it was quite sweet too, you know. I think for Paul, the sausage making in particular, that's such a sign of affection for him. Like, I am going mm. to invest. And I've, I picked that up with the, so Paul's family makes sausages, but only one type of sausage. And he wants to branch out into the sausage world. And he creates this taco <laughs> sausage, which I thought was hilarious and <laughs> disgusting at the same time. Um, it was but funny. it's so like it's almost an ode to Asta and her heritage that it's a taco sausage because mm. she's Latina, and then he makes decides to make this Asian, um, this Chinese um, themed sausage. Then when he starts yeah. to bond with Ellie, and he bonds then with her dad through food, and it's just so. Yeah. It's, and gets him so to help. Sweet. And gets him to help. It's yeah, just, it's so sweet. Yeah. And it brings her it's dad out of his shell, which is really lovely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it's extremely, extremely lovely. Just that's not a word I'd use to describe the film. Generally, is lovely. lovely. Yeah, it is lovely. And look, Paul, all his um, social ineptitude, I think, is really, again, really um, accurate to to mm. teenagers. Like, it didn't feel forced. It wasn't like they gave him some kind of um, superficial issue it was actually just he's just overwhelmed in social situations and that's relatable and that's what it made mm. so relatable about his character as well so yeah, yeah. oh so good but um can i make Thanks. special mention of the use of technology yeah so the way that alice Wu um shows text messages and that online engagement i want every director who incorporates technology in some way to watch this film because it was just so well handled the way she mm. integrated it and putting it up on screen and the way people engaged with it and there wasn't full stops at the end of every sentence because nobody does that um, <laughs> so I think it was really organically put in mm. which was really cool I agree yeah there was a lot about this that felt organic yeah you know and that's it's yeah it just felt totally to me it just completely hit the mark yeah, um, definitely. And I think, you know, it's one one of the questions we ask a lot in this podcast is, did it achieve what the director and writer set out to make? Yep. Um, and in that sense, I think 100%. Most definitely. I think, look, the Cyrano, um, Cyrano storyline, I always have problems with generally because it's catfishing. But yeah. again, it's true to the characters that they were making. Mm. And to be able to make a queer story... Um, a Cyrano story, I think, was much more natural, much more organic than um, Sierra Burgess is a loser. Um, I think it, it <laughs> makes so much more sense that you would kind of masquerade to, to kind of suss out whether or not someone's playing in your camp, you know? Um, I totally agree. And, I yeah, the intent is different. And, and the intent here is still kind of dodgy. <laughs> But yeah, she had a real. They do. They fully stalk her. They fully stalk her. (laughs) Poor Asta. (laughs) Yeah. But definitely, I agree. I think the intent is definitely different. But it also plays into Ellie's. It's a much more natural conceit. You know, Ellie writes essays for her classmates. She pretends to be other people um, to make cash. So it actually feels like a bit of a natural fit. Um, yeah. Much more organic, again, organic than say some of the other constructs around Cyrano storylines. Mm. Yeah, agreed. Um, and the yeah. last point, the only other last point, and this is it comes back to intent as well. 
a lot of the criticism I've I've read towards it has been that the the same sex attraction storyline is not it doesn't go far enough. Mm. Um, in particular that it's being promoted as a queer representation or a queer YA story, but it actually because the relationship doesn't end with a queer relationship, or the sorry, the film doesn't end with a queer relationship, it's not a queer film. And I just want to raise that as a what? Because I think the way it's handled, you know, Ellie has been so isolated for so long and so insulated from everybody around her. The fact that she's able to make a potential uh, connection with a potential um, same-sex relationship is, I think, much more powerful than them hooking up and having sex in the lake. You know, it's... I, I Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that criticism is bullshit. Cause it's like, so what are you saying? The only way that a queer story can be validated is through... Uh, um, a romantic ending? Yes. It's basically the... Um, because it makes... Yeah, yeah the criticism. It pulls no yeah. punches. Ellie's a lesbian, so it's a queer story. It's like that Hannah Gadsby bit, you know, like how she says in the net about how she had that criticism where there wasn't enough lesbian content. And she was like, I've been on stage the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's... <laughs> like, it's... Here I'm queer, get used to it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, this is a story that was directed by a queer woman about a queer woman's coming of age. Yeah. And about, and it ended with a happy ending. Like, if you want to have your, like, attention about bad queer love stories or whatever, talk about any of the eight million ones that, you know, the bury my gaze trope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, that's, I think that's a complete bullshit criticism. I agree. Ellie ended this movie better than she started it and with more satisfying growth. And a purpose in her life that wasn't bogged down in a duty that she shouldn't have had, which was that her dad's job, basically, mm. and, and if, the responsibility and, for him. And it doesn't end in a superficial relationship. Like, Asta still no. didn't... She didn't know what she wanted. She didn't know whether she... Yeah, it was open-ended. Exactly. So, you know, I think yeah. it, it ends on such an... Uh, uh, the end note is hope. That, but all yeah. three of them kind of move into the future with this idea of hope. You know, Asta having applied to art school, Paul having gotten his sausage reviewed, <laughs> which is, again, not a euphemism, <laughs> <laughs> and Ellie going off to school. You know, it's it's it mm-hmm. ends on this idea that anything's possible, really. Uh, back to Wallace test. Yeah, it passes. It does. Even though they do spend a lot of time talking about Paul, it does pass because they're also... It does. Uh, talking about each other through hyperbole and metaphor. Mm. It's true. Uh, and it also, like, breaks it pretty quickly because Ellie talks to the teacher. <laughs> this is true. This is also true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, sexy lamp test. Mm, I think it passes. The only one that's a maybe would be Asta. But I don't think she could be. I think, like I said, she's got too much interior life represented. Definitely. Throughout. Yeah. yeah. Maybe Trig. The boyfriend. <laughs> Trig could be a sexy lamp. I have to say. All right. So I spent one of my many bajillion schools that I went to. One of them was in a village of like 250 people. And trucking and mudding was like the all-time high school pastime. Like if you got invited to go trucking and mudding, like fucking hell, you were cool. You were too cool. <laughs> And I was watching that whole sequence laughing my guts out because it was the worst. (laughs) But also on that same note, the church, the view of the church um, in terms of the centre of the social and um, 
the, the social strata and cultural life is so accurate, like 110%. Like if you, you either went to the Anglican church or you went to the Catholic church and that was the center of the social life in these small towns. So mm. I applauded Alice Wu. Like that was just so accurate and I loved it. The end. Amazing. At Hardwell Boarding School, there are five factions. They will push you past your limit. And therein lies their collective power. But the story isn't about the factions. It's about her, Sella Summers, and what she must do in order to ensure her legacy. Seeing as it's her senior year, and she has no one to pass it down to, except for me. Our second movie today is Sella and the Spades. Five factions run the underground life of Holdwell School, a prestigious East Coast boarding school. At the head of the most powerful faction sits Sella Summers, walking the fine line between being feared and loved. Sella and the Spades is directed by Teresha Poe. The film's cast includes Lovie Simone, Celeste O'Connor, Gerald Jerome, Gina Torres and Jesse Williams. The film had its world premiere at Sundance in 2019 and it was released on Amazon in April 2020. Amy, thoughts, comments, feelings? It's a really interesting film because I think all the characters take themselves so seriously, but it's they're actually not being particularly out there. Like, it's, mm. uh, And it's such an interesting film. I mean, I, I was very entertained, particularly in terms of the interaction between the factions when they're having their little you know, um, their heads of heads meeting and they're all having the negotiation and there was the memo, how they're not to talk about this ever again and you breach the accord and all this kind of stuff. I loved it because it's such wankery that teenagers do. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And that I think is where I appreciated it more than something like Gossip Girl where they take themselves too seriously. Whereas Seller and all those guys, they're kind of, they're still behaving like teenagers. They're still talking like teenagers. It's still teenage level uh, issues. They're just very, Seller's, Seller's priorities are just really fucked up. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I found really interesting in terms of her character. In terms of the story, though, I still feel like it was unresolved. It didn't quite end in the way that landed yeah. for me. But it's still, it's a beautiful, stunningly shot. And it's so, such a good mix of, 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 of direction. Like, I think um, Tyresha Poe's done a phenomenal job. She's Her eye is just... She's got a really good eye for uh, the unique shot and the unexpected shot, Mm. and that's what I really appreciated about this film. It was just such a beautiful film to watch. Every shot was an art shot every single time. Um, Even if the narrative didn't make sense, it was still very beautiful to look at, and I I enjoyed that part of it um, a lot more Mm. than I think the story. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was visually, it was a feast. Yes. It was so wonderful to watch. Um, and I really, really found it compelling. Um, I enjoyed it. Um, but I will say um, two things here. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is that there was too much world, not enough character development. Yes. Um, and the other thing is it should be a TV show. Yes. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. Yeah. Solved. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Because I found the world so interesting. 
Um, and I loved the kind of faction breakdown. I loved these kind of all this history that was steeped in the faction's relationship with the faculty, but also with each other, um, with the kind of um, very tense relationship that Sella had, especially with Bobby. Which just, again, just as it kind of the movie unfolded, you realised how much history was involved in that conflict as well. But you have, you know, you've got five factions. You only ever really see two of them. Mm. Um, well, three if you include the prefects. Um, and there's so much more there to explore. And the car- and I think it got so bogged down in trying to unpack that world and to reveal that world that it actually often misstepped with the character development. I thought Sella was amazing, such an interesting character, really, really loved the exploration of her. I thought Lovey Simone was phenomenal in the role. So good. So um, good. Any of the other all the other characters, particularly Paloma, I did not know I was not invested enough in her as a character. And it was really positioning her as the foil for Sella. And you didn't really get any of that until the end. And I found unfortunately that arc just because it had been so, uh, I think, unbalanced in terms of... Well, there was just too much world, you know? Mm. Like I said, it was just too much world. Um, in some ways, you know, kind of too creative in that sense and in exploring those spaces. Um, and that, yeah, these sorts of... All these kind of characters fell a little bit by the wayside. I wanted more of Sella and Bobby. I wanted more of Sella and Maxie. I wanted more of Sella and Paloma. I wanted more of Paloma and Maxie. I wanted more of that kind of weird um, dynamic between Paloma and Bobby, which is what obviously sets Sella off, mm-hmm. you know? So it's just like, and unfortunately, I just felt all of that was too rushed. I completely agree. it wasn't quite there. You've yeah, articulated and it was all there. my problem with it. <laughs> good. good. Thank you. <laughs> and it, Yes, and it was all there, and what it was, I was like, so like, yes, like if this had been nailed, I would have been obsessed with this movie, <laughs> guarantee. Like, it's got so much of the stuff that I love, but unfortunately, I just, um, it's, um, I think Tyrisha Poe did such an awesome job with the visuals. I think she did an awesome job with the world building, and I think she did an amazing job with Sella. Um, I just unfortunately think the other characters and those interpersonal relationships. And that conflict, as a result, fell by the wayside. Um, yeah, I guess that's kind yes, of how I'm I feel about it. Oh, Sorry, good. <laughs> I, I am agreeing with you. It's just okay. the whole thing just um, technologically jerked out. Um, yeah. So I couldn't understand anything you were saying. But yes. Oh, good. I can well, yeah. So I'm just saying, yeah, the, inter- <laughs> the interpersonal connections were unfortunately what got, got lost. I think in the shuffle. Of, and I wonder uh, of that creative process. Yeah, I wonder which if is that's a shame. actually. Again, um, a symptomatic issue of this being a first-time feature film director um, yeah, trying I to that too. demonstrate best work because mm. I look at something like Dare Me, the TV series, mm. and this I sits love. squarely, of course you do, um, do this I sits squarely <laughs> in that space and I feel like mm. I think you're 110% accurate and you've articulated what I was very unable to do earlier <laughs> is that it there was so much world and so much interest um that the story got overwhelmed um yeah because she and she has some excellent things to say and I wanted to hear more about what she was trying to say particularly between those relationships and 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 seller and the conflict that she has in her and dare me I think is is on level with where seller sits and where mm. it got you know a 10 episode series um 
Tyresha only gets a, a feature film. So yeah, one hundred minutes as well. It's only an hour forty. It's a very short um, feature film. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I totally agree. And I think Seller, like I said, I think Seller's really, really well drawn and is indicative of what um, Tyresha Poe can do. Yeah. Um, and I loved the conflict of Seller in terms of her lack of control in her home life and that being reflected in her over-controlling her life at school and her life at the factions and her life in the cheer squad. Um, and I love how that they don't cheer, spirit squad, they sorry, spirit. yes, yeah. they spirit. I don't know. What <laughs> and the spirit is. squad. I loved that that manifested in a way that ultimately made her push people away who cared about her, mm. and that she was clearly incredibly lonely. Um, and I loved the way all of that manifested. But yeah, unfortunately, it just it was the fact. I think particularly the dynamic between. Seller and Paloma, where Paloma was clearly supposed to be not only a foil for Seller, but also the reflection of this horrible thing that Seller had done prior to the story starting, that it just didn't come together quite as well as it needed to, um, or quite as well as I wanted it to as yep. well, because like I said, the promise in it is so, so, so good and so satisfying. Um and yeah, and that's why I think it needed a series. Like, you need a series to fully explore the five factions. You need it to explore the history and the interpersonal conflicts and the drama. And and it was like, you know, again, like, I think one of the problems is that it was all too compelling. You know, you wanted all of it. Yeah. And you, want, you didn't get enough of any of it in the end, you know? Because it's, I think it was trying to split its focus. I mean, it was always focused on Cellar. Um but it was spread too thin across a particularly Maxi, Bobby, and Paloma. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And her mum as well, I'd mom. say. Yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting. And I think, to unfortunately. Say. Yeah. Mm. And certainly, certainly, if they'd gotten a TV series, we would have got a bit more depth in those relationships, which we yeah. get here. But in saying that, it's still a really interesting film and it's really entertaining it is, yeah. film. Like I didn't, I walked away going, I just want more of it. Give me, feed me more. Yeah, well, that's exactly yeah. it's me as well. Yeah. <laughs> the, the problem wasn't wanting less of anything. It was literally wanting more of more everything. More of everything. All of the things, yeah. please. Please turn this immediately into a TV series. And I think this is yeah. such a good proof of concept for a TV mm. series. Um, yeah. Yeah, Amazing. I think, oh my God, yes. 100%. Yes. Um, yeah. the factions, I feel like we need to talk about the factions a little bit. And again, I think one of my issues with the five factions is that we only ever really knew three of them. Sure. Yeah. Which was, and even the prefects you barely know, except for the scene of them as kind of, um, Paloma's, you know, blood in, blood out scene <laughs> of, of, of beating the guy up. Um, yeah. the only, the only two factions we get to know well is Sella and Bobby's. Yes. Correct. And I love, can I say how much I love that there is a faction that is just wrapped up in the drama club and the one chick in the drama club? I just <laughs> love that so much that this is such a power hungry girl that she's like, it's not even about the drama club. It's about me. It's about me yeah. in the drama club. Yeah. 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 And it's named after me. After it's, it's all. <laughs> we all dress the same. It's totally accurate. Um, I will yeah. say about Paloma, actually, we'll talk about that in um, the lady part segment, but... Um, 
It really does have that tone of the Godfather thing in it where, you know, you come mm. to me at my daughter's wedding um, kind of stuff going on. That was the worst Marlon Brando impression. I was going to let it slide. I mean, I was going to let it slide. Awful. Uh, anyway, look, it wasn't great. Shut she up. Power through. Shut power up. through. Um, but it is, as you said, totally about control. And, and I think the way that she demonstrates that, um, Taya Chabot demonstrates that through really subtle means. Like it's not it's not ever Stella saying about she wants power and she wants control, but it's in the subtlety of the way she engages with the people around her. And like the there's a great mm. scene where Paloma turns around to her and while she's fixing up her hair in the mirror and she's like, you know, you don't have to look perfect all the time. You're allowed to be free. And Stella's <laughs> looking at her like, you know, there's a pelican sitting on her head. Like, it's just yeah. – <laughs> this is such an alien concept to her. Um, yeah. and, and I think that was really well done. And this this film just shows the 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 skill of the director and the writer. Um, it just shows the potential of the skill of the director and the writer, and I can't wait to see what she does yeah. next. It's amazing as a first feature. Yeah. And it was, you know um, – when I watched it, you know, I turned around to the person watching it with me and just said, this just makes me so excited for our next film. Yeah. You know, it's like, because it, it does, unfortunately, like I said, there is, there are kind of these issues with it in particular, like I said before, about too much world, not enough character. Um, but all of that sort of stuff is stuff that's going to grow. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you know that it's going to grow. Um, and she's going to have this, hopefully, an amazing career and hopefully turn this into a TV series oh my for God, me yes. to conceive and be obsessed with. Yes, please. Please. <laughs> because that I, feels inevitable. This would be, this is what Gossip Girl wanted to be, honestly. Yeah, totally. Uh, because it is it is dark, but it is fun and it is true to who they are as young adults. Mm. Um, and it's and it's about privilege and power because it's set at a private mm. boarding school. Um, and it's about all those things that Gossip Girl's about, but it's, I think, a much more um, organic is the wrong word, but a much more natural feel. It is, because it doesn't go, you know, the stuff that they're doing doesn't go ridiculous. Like, of course, Sella's got the power because she's got the ability to supply parties with party favours. Yeah. You know, like, that's that's where her power comes from, which is a logical place as opposed to, you know, well, you get a ride in my private jet or whatever, like Gossip Girl was, or, you know, I can take you to a photo shoot in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's, um, that sort of stuff was so highly, um, you know, aspiration porn, really. Yes. Whereas the way this is approaching it is actual, actually things that are like, even though it's kind of, you know, high concept in terms of the way it's broken up the factions, they're realistic in terms of what people can provide, like prefects being able to turn a blind eye and buy protection and the kind of with seller's power coming from being able to supply booze and drugs to parties. Yeah. Like it's, it's the basis is steeped enough in reality that it feels more authentic to watch than a show like Gossip Girl does. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I completely agree. Even their prank was like totally on point. Like, yeah, it's like, so delightful. Good. It's so good. You have to see it because that prank was just yeah. masterful. I'm like, that is just a beautiful piece of trolling yeah. the faculty if ever I saw it. Like, oh, yeah. Fabulous. <laughs> anyway, uh, moving right along. Um, I do want to make special mention of the Spirit Squad because there is a monologue that mm. Stella says there um, about being just 17. Fabulous. And it's 
this idea that at 17 you have to take whatever power you can get because people everybody's going to try and tell you who to be what to wear how to look how to behave what your future is so at 17 whatever power you can grasp you need to take regardless of what power it is and it's such a fantastic monologue and i think such a indictment of um tyresha poe's viewpoint that i just that i will watch i reckon on repeat for years to come because mm. it's so good and so articulate and I'm an idiot because I didn't write it down for this podcast. <laughs> but um, if if nothing else, I recommend you go and check that out because it's really it's really powerfully written and so telling of the it character. Is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, like I said before, I think Stella is wonderful and so well written and so well drawn um, and so clearly drawn. Like I feel like at the end of this movie, I knew exactly who she was. Yeah. And it's just a shame because I don't think I could say that about any of the other characters in it. That's interesting. Which is slightly disappointing. Particularly because you said that about Paloma. And I think I had a pretty, like, I feel like I knew who Paloma was. She mm. she was just trying to get through. And Seller identified her and fixated on her because she was malleable. She was able to kind of yeah. be swayed in any direction. And as soon as she got a little taste of being anyone, she just, it went straight to her head. And she was like, yeah. right. <laughs> um. But as you said, I think, you know, Seller is the most fleshed out character and certainly yeah. it would have been good to see more of her interaction, particularly with Maxie. Yeah. Um, lady parts. Shall we talk about the lady parts apart from Seller? Yeah, I think we've talked about Seller enough. Or Paloma. I mean, you just kind of talked about Paloma. We did. Um, well, should we start with Bobby then? Yeah, let's talk about Bobby. So Bobby is your stand... Your standard, run-of-the-mill, rich white chick. Uh, rich drama chick. Oh, yeah, I was just like, artsy <laughs> white chick. Bray and everything. The beret man and the bob haircut. I was like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, what did you think of her as a character? Well, it's the exact same thing I just said about Paloma, you know, where it's this thing where I wanted more of her. And I really wanted to, I was really intrigued by the dynamic between her and Stella in the sense of it being kind of two kind of alpha chicks who are, and how somebody within Bobby's faction had defected to Stella and then how Stella had essentially ruined her, you know? Um, And I was intrigued by that relationship and that dynamic and I really wanted to see more of it. And I wasn't, I couldn't be sure if, I would have liked to have gotten a better sense of what that meant to Bobby. If it was this thing, if the wound of that was that she actually, if she really did care about Teela and was upset about what had happened to her, or if the wound was more in the defection, you know, Um, and the implosion of that. Because they're both obviously such proud characters and characters who cling to power. Um... So in that sense, I wish that we'd gotten to see more of what, what the um, what the hurt in the Seller and Bobby relationship was, mm-hmm. and by proxy in in Bobby in particular in that in that particular instance, um, because we obviously knew that she was she hated Seller, um, but to really understand the why of that, I think was kind of missing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We knew why, but not, I guess, not in a way that felt as nuanced as what was implied. Sure. Yeah. No, I get what you're saying. Mm. I think that's really it's such an interesting point, too, that whether it was because she loved Teela or because 
it was because she had defected that she was concerned yeah. about the same thing happening to Paloma, which given how invested she was in not making sure that the same thing didn't happen to Paloma, but, she, she, you know, I think it was actually that she did care about Teela and she she mm. saw the danger that Teela presented to herself and to kind of the – also the hierarchy, you know, in terms of the factions mm. and the power that they wielded because she didn't want to see that replicated. But, yeah, I think that's such an interesting question. Oh. Yeah. Mm. And, again, like it's this kind of thing – I know I've said this down multiple times, but I'll say it one last time. I probably one more. I was going to say this is not going to be last because I can pretty. No, it's not. (laughs) But my there there was so much amazing stuff set up in this, which you couldn't have couldn't have covered in a movie. Mm. Anyway, there were just too many characters and too much world building. But it was so compelling that I just really wanted. I really do feel like it would be better as a TV show. Better served as a TV show. Yes, please. We're gonna hashtag it and advocate right now yeah (laughs) Um, moving on from because there's not really any other female characters a note except for Sela's mum maybe um what did i say Sela. oh before as well you're combining yeah Sela and Sela. so Sela's mum who is only in it tina um gina torres oh my god i'm doing it with everything gina torres um who's only in it microscopically but um, yeah. this idea of the the overbearing. She's wonderful. She's I, again, like I was just saying this about um, Becky Ann Baker before, but Gina Torres is also somebody who's always welcome on my screen. Yes. So it was very nice to see her. 100%. And really different character for her too as this overbearing, yeah. um, high expectations mother that um, Stella has. And hyper-controlling. Hyper-controlling mother, yeah, which Stella kind of in her presence is not who she is at school. So she almost, mm. she, it's, it's her acting out, you know, it's her gaining control at school where she lacks control at home. Mm. Mm. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Such an interesting dynamic. And again, you just want to see more of them. You do. You mm. really do. Yeah. Uh, Boy Beats? Maxie. Yeah. Played by the immensely talented Jarell Jerome. Jarell Jerome. Jarell Jerome. Um, I think he's fantastic as an actor. Um, as a character, again, I just wanted more. Um, I liked that he was kind of slipping from his need to have a girl. His always desire to have a girlfriend and to have a relationship with somebody that was not about the factions. Mm. Um, but again, I just really wanted to have more history, particularly... Because I felt like one of the strongest scenes of the film, too, was the sort of mini standoff he had with Paloma. Yes. Uh, where they were both kind of playing tug of war over Cella. I just found really compelling and really interesting and really well acted by both um, Jarell and Celeste, uh, who did such a good job. Um, and, yeah, I guess I just – again, I just wanted more of it, hey? Mm. Like, I just wanted to better understand these characters, to know more about them, to – really get to, you know, to wriggle into those relationships <laughs> is kind of what you wanted to do. And um, and unfortunately, yeah, it just felt a bit broad for me. But, yeah, what do you think of Maxie? I think he is very interesting contrast to Sella, who is so controlled. Maxie's a bit more of a loose goose. Um, yes. <laughs> I'm a 100-year-old woman. Um, <laughs> yeah. But certainly in terms of the, their dynamic, it's interesting that Sella 
has literally her right hand man um, as almost a co-head of the faction, but not quite. Whereas everybody yeah. else, it's just the faction heads. Fisella, it's Sella and Maxie. And it's entirely aromantic. There is no hint mm. of of Sella or Maxie wanting to be in a relationship with each other um, that's beyond mm. their partnership um outside the spades and but they're best buds they're they're again it's interesting that um you know the half of it explores this idea of um platonic or emotional intimacy which is what seller and the spades does with seller and maxi it's a platonic Mm. intimacy um but seller is immediately challenged when he wants something more from a a girl you know he Mm. wants a sexual relationship um, and it's, I think that's the biggest, biggest point is that I, this is a coming of age story. It's this idea of Sela letting con- go of control of her very small little world. And yeah, it's her really struggling with the idea that, um, Maxie's going to have a romantic relationship that he, that it's not just going to be them together, you know, in the future. Yeah. Um, and that Paloma must be the reason that she turns on Paloma is, you know, it, um, as soon as Paloma expresses ideas that are different to hers in how the faction should be yeah. run, that's when she turns on Paloma. So um, coming back to Maxie as a character, I think definitely it's they're, they're, they're peas, two of, they're two sides of the same coin, really, mm-hmm. in that you can't have one with the other without the other and as soon as it becomes apparent that Maxie's going to carve out his own path that's when the conflict for Sella starts to come in and she's she's starting to lose control but I think she genuinely respects him I think she genuinely mm. um, values him but um, as soon as she feels like she's losing that insular relationship with him that's when she's like oh fuck now i'm gonna retaliate she puts up the wall yeah yeah instantly yeah she's like one of those classic cases of i'm gonna hurt you before you can hurt me definitely yeah Um, yeah um again which i find really compelling and you're totally right i i loved the fact that maxi was straight yeah because you so rarely see that sort of relationship between men and women that aren't don't have a sexual undercurrent yeah um if or, you know, if you do see that sort of intimacy between a man and a woman, one of them's gay. Obviously. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's... Which we just saw in the half of it, you know? Like, it was... Yeah. So it's interesting to kind of look at it in that kind of context. And not to have a love interest for Sella, too, which was really mm. good. Um, I mean, she kind yeah. of says, I don't know if they were trying to say she's asexual or she's just not interested, mm. you know, at this time in her life. I wasn't clear on that. I read it more. I thought initially that it was potentially an implication that she was asexual, but her growing, her escalating relationships with both Maxie and Paloma, I took to mean more that it's a part of her control. Right. So she doesn't have, uh, she's not, she doesn't date because that would be surrendering control. Yeah, okay. and it would be allowing a vulnerability with people that she couldn't control. Right, I see, I see. Yeah, okay. That's kind of how I read it. But I could see as well her being asexual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like. I agree with you, though, that, you know, whenever there's mm. that kind of, particularly when there's the powerful female um, mm. as the central character, there's always seems to be the, the gay right-hand man or the gay best friend, yeah. you know, um, 
but to have Maxie as a straight dude who is very actively interested in women, I mean, mm. that, that was good to see. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really nice. Um, what did you think of the stakes though? The the party and the seller's response to Paloma going her own way. Oh yeah, that was so that was one of the areas it fell down a bit for me. Mm-hmm. Um I was super, super intrigued and compelled by the conflict, as you said before, really coming from Paloma having starting to have ideas outside of her mm-hmm. and ideas that were responded to um, and developing kind of not in a relationship but developing a um, dialogue I guess with the other members of different factions particularly Bobby mm-hmm. I found that really 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 compelling um, how it manifested through the prom I didn't mind um, but I think it all happened too quickly it did. It I paced think, up really quick at the end there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there was enough build up to it initially. And then I don't think there was enough, but in particular where I don't think there was enough build up was to her and Maxie reconnecting mm-hmm. at the party. I think we needed to see that scene needed to be weighted in a different way. Yep. Um, and I think we needed to see perhaps Stella struggling without Maxie bit more than we did yeah um to contribute to her resentment of paloma okay interesting yeah um because as paloma was connecting with others and maxi was offered his new girlfriend i think we really should have felt because it had already established that Stella was lonely and like that was one of the things one of the scenes in that kind of sequence that i found the most powerful was when she complimented uh maxi's girlfriend during the cheerleading practice yeah or spirit squad practice I thought that was really poignant and really well done, particularly because it ling- the cam- the way the camera lingered on Sella on her own afterwards. Um, you know, it was such a clear it's lonely at the top moment, you know? Like, it is – it was – I thought that was really, really well handled. And I wanted – again, I just wanted more. Yeah. A few more <laughs> you know, of those kind of moments. I wanted more of that. Yeah. Yeah. To really build up to it. And then kind of at the end, the way the, way the film ended with, you know, Paloma running – toppling over the edge and then then pulling her back up and then Sella almost jumping but then getting pulled back by like through dialogue by Maxie and Paloma and then the end I don't know it that ending didn't quite work for me okay interesting it definitely uh, what do you think though no no I agree with you like I, I I think it it falls down to that idea of I just wanted more like yeah to end on that note like, what were the repercussions of that, for particularly for Maxie to, and Paloma to be the only people that essentially knew that that happened to Paloma, that Sella had yeah. drugged her, um, and, you know, that she was repeating history that she had done with Teela. It, that's, and, and, and not not thinking about the consequence but just knowing Mm. what particularly was the immediate effect of that because obviously they would have walked back into the party so Mm. what were we to take away from that that everything was forgiven and all three of them were back in the click again or yeah seller ostracized and i think that lack of clarity is probably the only down note that i actually had about the the story because much like sophia coppola 
where it's it's very much about atmosphere and tone and mm. and your the audience making those interpretations for yourself. Um, mm. I don't think I think this ended just a bit too early, just a little bit too early yeah. for us to be able to make that. You know what what was she trying to say beyond it's lonely at the top? Because mm. based on what we saw, it seemed like everything was fine and dandy again, even though she just drugged someone, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. But if we'd had, you know, a lingering shot of, you know, Maxie then going to his girlfriend and Paloma going to Bobby and Stella standing on her own, that might Yeah, have, that would have been great. Yeah, yeah, been a bit more telling. Or did they come back together and this was their resolution to get to, to, to reconnect? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I totally agree. But in saying that, like, I think... No, I fully agree. It's, again, it's such a... It's such a beautiful movie. It's visually dynamic. It's yeah. the way lingering shots with voiceover, the coupling of that. Normally I hate voiceover. I think it's a really lazy storytelling aspect often mm. when it's narration. But this was done so well to kind of contrast yeah. what was happening with the voiceover. It was just such a, a good use of um, coupling visual and auditory together to, to tell a really um, dynamic story. And yeah, sumptuous story. I totally story. agree. Sumptuous. Sumptuous. But give us more. Give us yeah, a TV no. series. Exactly. That's why I'm fully committed. Start the hashtag. Save seller or what do you reckon? Save seller. I don't know. I need to se- no. sell the series. Seller and the sell series. and the series. Boom, hey, baby. it works. Done. Done. I became. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, well, Bechdel Wallace test. Um, well, they rarely talk about men, so that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Full pass, I think. Full pass. Flying colours. Definitely. Sexy lamp. I don't think there's any sexy lamps in it, actually. Well, there are underdrawn characters. I don't think they're there purely for sexual reasons. Not at all. sexy reasons. No. So, yeah. Can I say, too, how much I appreciate that none of the teachers were in a relationship with students? <laughs> can we please dump that trope please immediately i hate it so much so much um yes no i very much appreciated that and none of the teachers were sexualized at all which was really good i no. mean they were pretty perfunctory but yeah mm. well i think that's it anything else i think that's it too um no again i'm just well only note to end on there is that for both alice Wu and um tyresha poe I can't wait to see their next projects. Hells yeah. Um, I think that they were both, you know, I had I had small quibbles with both of them, but I think that they were both, for a second feature and a debut feature, I think outstanding. Hells yeah. Um, and I think that they show, they made wonderful movies, and I'm excited, like I said, to see more of both of them. A lot. Completely agree. Lots more, please. Yeah. Yes. Hells yes. Cool. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Yes. Um, we'll be back in a mystery amount of time. <laughs> I'm done trying to explain the <laughs> Time is We're a fluid concept. People. Yeah. Especially in our time of COVID-19. Correct. Correct. <laughs> um, but you can join us on Twitter occasionally for Apocalypse Watch, um, which is... Uh, we watch movies about the end of the world because it, obviously it's the end of the world. 
2020. We're trying to we're trying to upskill. That's right. Um, for, That's right. for our day to day lives. Correct. Uh, <laughs> so you can follow us on Twitter at hashtag ApocalypseWatch, um, and you can find us always on social media uh, at Lady Parts Podcast on Twitter. So no T. Uh, or Inside Voice AU on Facebook. You can find me at Insomniacs Cafe. And you can find Sophie at my name, which is Sophie Overitz. Um, you can also now find us on Letterboxd. Oh, you can too. It's <laughs> Lady Parts Pod. Yes, please do. Um, and that way you can see as well all the movies that we've reviewed in the past, um, all the movies we're talking about for Apocalypse Watch. And like we said before, our new, very special list on um, diverse storytellers, yep. which is very exciting. It is. Um, and if you've got any recommendations too, throw them our way because we're always looking for new stories. To consume like <laughs> hungry story monsters. <laughs> hungry genre monsters. Exactly. Uh, on that note, stay safe. Uh, we'll see you we'll see you next time when we review the old guard. Yes, another on. Yes, another streaming premiere. Which will be exciting. Yes. Because Sophie's uh, not allowed fantasy, to leave her house nice. for six weeks. I'm, it's true. I am now on lockdown. So enjoy. Day two of lock, uh, lockdown two. <laughs> uh, but yes, take care, everyone. And we will catch you next time. Bye.